0: This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics,
1: trends,
0: discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Welcome to the Trumpets Weekly Review of all the important news. I'm Joel Hilliker, and with me is our panel here in the studio. We have Jeremiah Jacques. Thanks for having me. And Andrew Miller. Hello. From our office in Britain, we have Richard Palmer. Good afternoon. And from our office in Jerusalem, Brent Noctegal. Hello. Elections can shape history. We saw this week a dramatic return to power of Israel's prime minister Benjamin Netanyahu, a repudiation of the left-leaning government that took his place just 18 months ago. Next Tuesday in America could see a dramatic rebuke of the radical policies of Joe Biden and the Democrat Party. That's certainly the the indication that polls are giving. We'll talk about this in our first two stories on today's program, starting with some takeaways from the message that Israeli voters sent on Tuesday by empowering the most conservative, even religious Knesset ever. For this story, we'll go to Brent Noctegal.
2: Yeah, we've talked about this on the program midweek and and also on the Trumpet Daily because it is such a big story with Israel receiving the Israeli government receiving the clearest mandate of the from the Israeli public in about the last 20 years. Usually, there's a huge coalition-building process that takes place after an Israeli election, and you don't know who's going to who's going to be in power. But it's so clear now. Benjamin Netanyahu's coalition won uh, ended up winning 64 seats uh, in the Knesset, giving him a coalition that is absolutely outright and really a a mandate from the people to start making some serious changes um obviously the the left is very upset by this um however there's been just a, a profound sense as even carolyn glick wrote today of relief among israeli voters who care about the jewish traditional nature of the state rather than you know a a a nation that champions you know this the left-wing ideas of liberalism and and uh outright democracy um even though they don't necessarily believe in democratic values when they lose um but israel is pretty excited right now uh for the chance to enact some some reforms that it's needed be it in the security of the state um in particular and in particular the reforms needed in the judicial system in Israel um everyone on the right and this was one of the huge uh points of of um uh, to try and get voters was that what we've seen in Israel over the past twenty years is a shift in the Supreme Court that answers to nobody. That and that fate in every time it sees a case, it it sides with the leftist liberal agenda rather than holding on to Israel's traditional religious laws. That's what they've seen over the past two decades. Um, and especially over the past year and a half, yep. and so Israel is, is I think right now, as soon as Netanyahu gets in, really going to push back on that to try and su- try and restore the fundamental Jewish character of the Jewish state.
0: Melanie Phillips had uh, an article where she cast what happened in Israel this week in the context of a broader. What she calls the culture wars that are taking place, uh, particularly in America, but other other nations as well, between the forces of leftism and those of conservatism and showing how uh, this really is, uh, Israel's basically casting its lot in with those who are, are waging this war and pushing back against these radical forces
2: yeah uh this is a great article it's entitled israel joins the west's culture wars it was in the jewish news syndicate um, by melanie phillips her very her very last sentence says in addition to the physical threats to existence israel has now joined the west's culture wars and she brings up examples of the united states uh of britain she talks about you know former president donald trump Brought to, She writes, brought to power as pushback against the attempt by the liberal elite aided by fellow traveling Republicans in name only to destroy America's national identity and core values. We That's what we see in Israel right now. It was just way too much, too fast for the Israeli public to see what a leftist government did, aid and abetted by Arab parties that fundamentally don't believe in the nature, the Jewish state, believe that that needs to change completely. And- I think you know melanie phillips brings up such a good point um the people have been, are in israel if they hold on to a traditional conservative view are sick of being talked down to mm. uh by the media by the liberal politicians uh, as we define liberal today i guess um and enough was enough and and they don't want their the the nature of the nation to change they want to uphold traditional jewish values and so as it happened in britain with brexit she brings out as it's happened in the united states and as it happens in some other uh, nations throughout western europe as well um israel is joining this battle and it seems that most of the people uh do want to side with conservatism at this point so what's
0: interesting i i think you definitely see this in america this pushback against these uh these forces of radicalism it's actually deepening the divide or it's causing a uh, say the it's polarizing the the people in these countries all the more because neither side the, the left is certainly not willing to give in as these uh, forces are pushing back and so it's it's kind of uh, just deepening the the, uh, the divisions within these nations
2: Right so the the leftist idea is that you cannot compromise on on some of their points and so when they they're outrightly rejected by a majority of of the nation in a landslide victory by the other side you know you don't take that as correction you don't take that that you might need to change course some of your fundamental ideas you take that the majority of our country is crazy right and we need to we need to speak out we need to do anything we can to stop the death of democracy and, you know, the rhetoric leading up to this election was, was quite crazy. Just a couple of quotes. This is Merit's, a Merit's a politician said that we need to save, this is on the left. We need to save Israel from the malignant disease that is Netanyahu. One of Yesha Tid's politicians, this is the the party of Yair Lapid, the outgoing uh, prime minister said that Hitler was also elected democratically. Then Lapid himself called Likud voters. This is the party of Netanyahu, a river of filth. So, I mean, where do you go from there in terms of now most of Israel has, you know, elected everything that they think is the threat to democracy. Uh, And so, I mean, this is not going to heal the nation. Um, There's no chance of that. But let's say it gives a temporary uh, respite for the nation because you have uh, the people in power that aren't dedicated to the destruction of the state
0: so to uh, to see the same thing playing out the language that you were just using about what you're hearing there in Israel this is obviously exactly the same thing that's happening here remarkable to see that considering the fact that these nations are absolutely linked in in prophecy Israel and America
2: yeah israel america they're closely linked along with the uk as well the bible puts them together these are the nations of modern day israel and this is proven in in herbert w armstrong's book the united states and britain in prophecy and there's lots of prophecies for the time directly preceding the second coming of christ um which talk about uh three nations israel ephraim uh, and some prophecies in Hosea chapter five, um, and then Judah, biblical Judah being this nation of Israel, the Jews today. And it talks about them going down together um, in one month. And so you you do expect there to be similar uh, problems and similar uh, uh, similar political scene in many ways, um, similar cultural scene amongst these three nations, and when you see exactly the same politics playing out, different characters, but but the same atmosphere, it definitely does show us that we are close to, very closer, and going into these times that the Bible does uh, clearly put these nations together, experiencing the same fate.
0: Anything that you could refer people to that that shows the the link between these nations.
2: I think that book, The United States and Britain in Prophecy, also the book of prophecy about Hosea, it really gets into the Israel angle, uh, the nation of Israel today angle as well, as well as uh, how it connects to the United States and Britain.
0: All right. Thanks for that, Mr. Noctegal. America's election is now just days away. It looks like we're going to see this similar shift to the right here. And the way that Democrats are responding
1: to this prospect is quite telling. For this story, we'll look to Andrew Miller. Yeah, you're definitely hearing a lot of similar rhetoric in America as you're, you're hearing in Israel with uh, Joe Biden giving a, a pretty high-profile speech just recently uh, where he used the phrase uh, multiple times that democracy is under attack. Uh, this is one of the quotes from that speech where he said, We must, with an overwhelming voice, stand against political violence and voter intimidation. We don't settle our differences in America with a riot, a mob, a bullet, or a hammer. We settle them peacefully at the ballot box. Uh, and then the context with that, I mean, his reference to uh, to the hammer is was, was a, was a pretty overt reference to the, a recent attack uh, by a communist nudist on uh, Speaker Nancy Pelosi's husband. Uh, Mr. Stephen Fleury. has been talking about that quite a bit on the Trumpet Daily, uh, just really exposing a lot of the hypocrisy that he's trying to use this uh, this hammer attack to accuse the right of political violence uh, when the, when the man who did it is not was not a mag Republican at all. he's probably further to the left than uh, than most Democrats uh, today which is which is saying something uh, but still just the just the rhetoric of this whole, Democracy is under attack. Uh the January 6th protest was a coup. Mega Republicans are the biggest threat to the nation. All coming at a time when democracy re- really is under attack, uh, but not from uh not people from mega Republicans or, or or even people who are voting, yeah. uh but from but from technocrats trying to steal ballot steal elections with fraudulent ballots. Uh we've heard uh, I read the Pretty recent analysis from uh, the uh, Washington Post, where many elects, any election experts are are saying, uh, "Don't expect results on election night. This is mm-hmm. going to take a few days," mm-hmm. uh, as they because the dead for the six swing states. Nevada is usually pretty quick at counting them, but the other five, the other five of those swing states, no Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania. Uh, Georgia, uh, these uh, these swing states. I mean, they're they're allowing mail-in ballots right up till the time polls close, and then you have to count those mail-in ballots, and it's a little harder to count mail-in ballots because, like, if someone comes up to a poll with an ID with a driver's license, you can pretty much just count their vote. With a mail-in ballot, you've got to do all the signature match, and there's so much allegations for fraud. You could have a repeat of what happened in in 2020, where you spend the next week uh, counting mail-in ballots, debating whether. Uh, the person who mailed them in was really a citizen, or whether they mailed in two, or whether they mailed in three, or whether they were uh, went to the local nursing home and uh, that actually happened last election. Went to the local nursing home and handed out mail-in ballots to uh, a- anyone they could find who was senile and didn't know what they were writing, uh, and a really a big disturbing change in America because I've been I- I've been pretty politically attuned to each election since. Um, Oh, since Bill Clinton was first elected, uh, just kind of like watching, and you always knew on election night. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I'm not even that old, but I mean, like I said, you look back, and like I said, pretty much throughout America, most of America. I don't. Well, I guess I don't know what it was like in the George Washington's time when they were moving the ballots by horse or whatever. But it's like in at least in the 20th century, uh, you've always known on election night. This didn't change till. Uh, The covid pandemic and they started doing this mail in ballot thing 2020 and they haven't stopped doing it. They're doing it again. Uh, And so now, again, this just seems like it's the analysts are expecting this to be the new normal. Right. Well, uh, election happened for the next week. You argue over the mail in ballots. Uh, One side or the other gets upset, Um, Mm -hmm. gets upset uh, when the result didn't go the way they wanted and then you've got this political violence <laughs> this political violence problem
0: yeah uh, it's uh, it's a it's a problem without a uh, without a, an easy solution. It's kind of like uh, what Brent was describing in in Israel where uh, success of one party is kind of cast as this existential threat to the nation by the other party and in this case uh, it seems like Stephen Flurry has been bringing out on the trumpet Daily, uh, if things don't go well for the Democrats, uh, they're going to be crying foul about uh, the the election having been stolen from them. If it goes their way, then they are uh, they basically say anyone who denies that the election was free and fair is
1: uh, is a conspiracy theorist. Right? No, I think. Uh... Well, the Babylon Bee, they do like satirical news articles, but this one had, as most of them do, a a pretty big core of political truth, where they're like, both parties pledge to accept results of midterm election as long as they're the winner. Right. And so at this point, it's that's definitely my guess, is that there is going to be a red wave and we're going to have two more years of Russia, 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 or whatever the the Mm. talking point is from the Democrats. Uh, But... Like so said, the Babylon Bee pointed out it's like said pretty much we're in a political environment in America where the polarization is so bad that no matter which party wins, uh, the next two years are going to be the other party talking about election yeah. and fraud. That one of the oh one of the big biographers of Abraham Lincoln, uh, like a Pulitzer Prize winning biographer of Abraham Lincoln, was John Meacham, John Meekin, yeah, where he was saying that um. Uh, basically the chances of civil war now are worse than they were in the great depression. Mm-hmm. And like it was a great depression, you're like stock market was worthless. The people couldn't afford food. Unemployment was 30%. You, you'd have thought if there was ever going to be, uh, a, like a Bolshevik revolution in the United States, that was their chance. Uh, but like I said, yeah, according to this, like really well-known historian, he's like, no, actually, it's like as I said, as as big as the risk of civil war or or people's revolution was in the depression. It's like it's worse. It's worse now. The political polarization is worse now.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is uh, this is division that really cannot be healed. It's it's just becoming uh, more and more entrenched uh, all the time, and uh, it's. It's quite something to see uh, to see this unfolding the way that it is, particularly given uh, the fact that prophecy tells us that this is going to be a, a major, major problem within uh, the United States, in particular, that enables foreigners to, uh,
1: to to take us down. Right. I mean, we'll we'll put our. Uh... <laughs> Uh, I think it's our most, our most popular book now, but uh, America Under Attack and the show notes that goes through the prophecies in uh, Amos seven and Second Kings fourteen about an end time uh, Jeroboam, uh a Donald Trump figure coming back to temporarily uh, save Israel, which is a strong indication that the Republicans could do well in this midterms, or if not, at least do well in the next presidential election. Uh, but, I mean, th- th- those prophecies, they, uh, they're, they're the next step we're expecting, but they, they definitely don't negate the prophecies in Ezekiel 4 and Ezekiel 5 about a third of the people dying in, in violence and, and civil war. So even though there, there is a, a prophesied Republican resurgence, that definitely uh, it might be save america temporarily in some ways but it's definitely not going to heal the political divisions in the land mm. um uh, that th- there's still going to be <laughs> there's still going to be some uh, a-, a very strong opposition movement to the jeroboam figure that w- will w- will break out in uh in that second civil war that the uh the lincoln biographer was talking about All right, well, we will link to
0: that. Read America Under Attack. If you haven't done so, it really does explain uh, what is happening in the United States in a way that you will not read anywhere else. Thank you, Mr. Miller. As our longtime readers and listeners are aware, America and Israel are linked prophetically. They share a similar fate. They're also linked prophetically with Britain, which also just got a new government. Our next story comes from there. A flood of immigration that is proving to be a significant crisis for the country. For this story, we'll go to Richard Palmer.
3: Here's a statistic that just blew my mind this week. Between 1% and 2% of all adult Albanian men have recently arrived in the UK. That's not the equivalent of that number. It is literally... Somewhere around one in fifty or one in hundred men in Albania have just travelled over to the UK. That's the scale of the migrant crisis that we're we're starting to see on Britain's borders. What has really caught attention this week has been uh, the mass arrival of illegal immigrants. So far this year, there have been about 40,000 illegal immigrants come to the UK, mostly in small boats crossing the Channel. That's compared to 28,500 in all of last year and 8,500 the year before that. So uh, a dramatic rise in in this type of, of crossing. And a lot of this, this is starting to have and will soon have very serious knock-on effects. You know, these... Albanian gangs that are coming over are now proving uh, very strongly invested in things like drug smuggling, prostitution, criminal gangs. Uh, So all of this is 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 heightening. The government is running out of hotel rooms to put them in. They've been putting up these migrants often in very nice hotels at taxpayers expense as they try and deal with this massive increase in uh, illegal immigrants arriving in the country. And now they're starting even to mix them in hotels. You know, you might be going and staying at a hotel. You know, maybe it's even you're going, you're staying at a four-star hotel and you've got a room packed full of uh, illegal migrants Mm. that have been, uh, that are busy getting their drug and prostitution ring up and running in the room next door to you. Uh, So, uh, you know, something that's having dramatic implications.
0: This is a, this is an existential crisis For for Britain to be uh, trying to absorb that level of of uh, legal or illegal immigration, when you look at those kinds of numbers, uh, what's interesting when it comes to a a subject like this, it's it's very much like what we were talking about with respect to Israel and America, where you have two very different responses. There there are people who look at this and say, "Well, this is absolutely crazy. What are we doing?" And you have another group of uh people another contingent within the nation that just says hey if you don't allow them in you are uh you you lack compassion it's it's you know the, the, it would be unfair for us not to uh not to be welcoming to to these people who are coming in from from elsewhere and it's a, it's another polarizing
3: issue right i mean more than that it's not just that you lack compassion if you don't want to let them in you're racist yeah. And you're a nean that that is that is the narrative. Just a couple more stats before I get into that but 90% of those arriving are men. So you look at people genuinely fleeing a war zone like in Ukraine and it's mostly women and children. Hmm. You know this is this is not that. And then the government is spending about 7 million pounds per day on hotel accommodation for these these people. Uh, so it really is a, a, a massive scale of the crisis but you can't talk about it in those terms. So on Saturday in the UK, a man called Andrew Leake, uh, he attacked a migrant centre with petrol bombs, and you know I think he's in some ways he's he's Britain's own De Papay, Uh <laughs> where you look at him and he he he's been crazy since he's, he's been organ he's been taking cannabis and other drugs and you know he he's an insane person. Uh, he carried out this attack. He killed himself. But since then, you know, this week, for example, the new Home Secretary talked about an invasion of uh, people coming in from Albania. And really, when you look at the numbers, that that's an accurate term. And she is being absolutely hounded. There's a lot of pressure on Rishi Sunak, the new prime minister, to sack her. Uh, anybody that talks about dealing with something, you know, they're saying, well, you are fueling people like Andrew Lee You know, it's exactly the same thing as in the U.S. If you talk, if you say... Maybe this election might not be secure. Let's look into that. Well, you are fueling people going and attacking American politicians. That's what you hear from the from the West. That's exactly the same thing that you're you're hearing in in the UK. You cannot talk about this. You cannot you cannot address this.
0: It's hard not to view those kinds of uh, accusations as anything other than just an attack on Britain and what it stands for.
3: That's right, and this is where you, you know, this is where this the same book that we've been talking about for the last two segments, America Under Attack, I think, really comes into view. Where there's a problem here with migrants coming in, in a lot of ways, the bigger problem is the response from the inside. That you have people that won't address this problem, that won't get rid of these migrants, that won't deport them, that demonize anybody that deal with the problem. You know, our attacks, our, our problems, have more to do with that and this movement that wants to demonize the country from within. And that's hard to wrap your head around. Why, or just to kind of explain logically, why is there this effort to drag the country down from within? And America under attack, you know, just like Brent talked about, it's, yeah, it has got America on the, in the name, it reveals and exposes the political trend in all of these other countries. Mm -hmm. It's what you need to understand what's going on in Israel, as as, as Brent said. It's what you need to understand what's going on in Britain as well. It reveals the spiritual dimension between something that is just baffling otherwise and why you would have just such a widespread support within the political establishment for so many absolutely destructive ideals. And I think Andrew mentioned it's our most popular book. There's a reason for that. It explains the world that we live in, it gives the hope behind the world that we live in. I mean, this for me, living in the UK, reading all of the it's just maddening. I, you know, I'm sure there are bigger problems, but this does not feel that hard to solve. And it is incredibly aggravating to, to see your own politicians refusing to deal with it. And, you know, they could deal with it. And that book is just this, you know, getting grounded in that book is is the solution. And it, it, you know, it shows the hope and that there's a plan behind all of this. Um, And uh, it it just helps cope with with living in a world where you've got your own people or your own countries turning on themselves.
0: Well, the election results in Israel uh, are an indication of how broadly uh, people within Mm -hmm. these nations are feeling exactly the frustration that you're articulating there. Uh, We thank you for that, Mr. Palmer. Again, that book, America Under Attack, we will link to it in the show notes for the program today and just encourage you to go dig into that if you haven't done so. With the war in Ukraine dragging on, there's been talk in recent weeks about the potential for Russia to use nuclear weapons. American officials are saying this has actually been a serious option among Russian military leaders. For this story, we'll go to Jeremiah Jacques.
4: Yes, it was Wednesday that news broke about senior Russian leaders having had uh, apparently very earnest conversations about possibly using nuclear weapons in this war on Ukraine. In recent months we know that Russia has been losing territory that it previously controlled. It's it's also been losing warships, you know, to a country that doesn't even have a navy. It's been losing just about everything else as well at much higher rates than Ukraine. Soldiers, tanks, aircraft, artillery systems and uh, the list goes on. So this new report is about, well, really, it's about just as alarming a story as there could be, saying that Russian officials have discussed trying to turn all of this around by using nuclear arms. And, uh, and this report comes from some intelligence that U.S. government officials have circulated over the last few weeks. Multiple senior Pentagon officials affirmed this based on that uh, that intel there. And we know that since the earliest days of this war, intelligence agencies have been just very much on the lookout for signs that Russia is preparing to use nuclear weapons. You know, eyes have been peeled for things like undeclared nuclear drills or placing strategic forces on alert. And there has not been any evidence of those sorts of things, at least not that has been made public. But this new report does confirm that high-level talks, really at the highest echelons of government, have taken place on this topic. So it's, uh, it's chilling beyond words. And this calls to mind an article that was published on thetrumpet.com a few weeks back. It's called, Is the War in Ukraine About to Get Much Worse? by our own Mr. Palmer here. And one part of this article says, Russian President Vladimir Putin's whole life has revolved around furthering Russia's power. He's not going to calmly walk away opening the door for the destruction of the Russian Federation. And then a little further down, it says, if it's a choice between losing the war or using nukes, Putin will use nukes. So, you know, the the costs of losing this war would be just astronomical for Putin. Mm -hmm. And the fact that credible reports are now saying that his officials have had serious discussions about possibly using nuclear weapons shows, uh, You know, I think that if his options are either defeat or escalating the war to an unprecedented new level, he will escalate.
0: He uh, made a statement just within the last week or so where he said it would not be in our best interest to uh, to use nuclear weapons. Uh, What what was your, uh, maybe
4: you could just talk about that. Yeah, sure, He is exactly right in a lot of ways. There are major costs that would come from using nuclear weapons. First of all, it would put just a massive strain on Russia's relationships with China and India. Those two nations have given Russia all kinds of, uh, both direct and indirect support during this war. But both Xi Jinping in China and Narendra Modi in India have personally talked to Putin about how uneasy they are, about how the war keeps dragging on. They've both even started to voice some concerns in the UN. Um, Modi's government has specifically addressed Russia's threats about nuclear weapons and made clear that it firmly opposes that. Chinese state media have made similar statements. So for uh, for China and India, using nuclear weapons may be a bridge too far. So that would be just catastrophic for Putin to anger two of his most important partners. There's also Europe. Um, Russia needs to get free of the sanctions that Europe still has on Russia. And and if nuclear weapons are used, it would be extremely difficult, even just politically speaking, for those European governments to take those uh, sanctions away. There's also the fact that tactical nuclear weapons, which are the small ones mm-hmm. that can strike precise targets and, and not destroy whole cities, it's unlikely that using those would really make much of a difference in the war. Um, The yield of those is about 1% of what the bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima is. So they uh, they wouldn't really give Russia a strategic advantage. George Friedman recently wrote about this at Geopolitical Futures. He wrote, tactical nuclear weapons can determine the outcome of a battle, but not a war, and they would not make the land unlivable so you know using tactical nuclear weapons it would bring about all that bad press for russia vis-a-vis china india europe without really gaining much so basically that leaves putin only with the option of strategic nuclear weapons those are the terrifying city destroying bombs that create so much nuclear fallout Um, and those could certainly win the war for putin very easily but george friedman says that the main problem with these would be the wind patterns in Ukraine, because they blow almost all to the northeast, especially from eastern Ukraine. And of course, that would mean that if a strategic nuclear bomb were used in Ukraine, most of its fallout would blow right in to Russia and rain down, especially on mm. that strategic city of uh, Voronezh. So, you know, none of this means that Putin wouldn't use nuclear weapons, but I think it shows why he hasn't used them yet. Mm -hmm. They are just a terrible option for countless reasons, but even still losing the war remains an even worse option Mm -hmm. for Putin. So these weapons, I think, are not at all off the table.
0: So obviously there are a lot of factors in looking at this and people trying to weigh, is he going to use them? Will he not use them? Uh, Looking at this from a prophetic standpoint, what does the Bible uh, indicate in terms of whether Russia would actually follow through with this threat?
4: Yeah. Well, this article that I mentioned by by Mr. Palmer, it goes into a prophecy in the book of Ezekiel. It's in Ezekiel 38. And that's one that uh, Trump editor in Chief Gerald Flurry has written a lot about over the last few years, especially. Mr. Flurry explains that it's all about a Russian ruler who will end up playing a major role in the final world war. And Mr. Flurry has said that this prophecy is specifically about Vladimir Putin. So from that, I think we can You know, we can be sure that even though it doesn't look very good for Putin and for Russia right now, they will somehow emerge stronger from all of this, whether nuclear weapons are used or not. Um, Another quote from that article says, Western journalists would be willing to write this off as a failed prophecy right now. But the Bible gives a very different forecast. Putin will double down. He's here to stay. And in the short term, the conflict may get even worse. Hmm. Well, we will link to that article, Is the War in
0: Ukraine About to Get Much Worse?, from Mr. Palmer in the show notes. And we uh, thank you very much for bringing that to us, Jeremiah. Uh, You're listening to Trumpet Hour. Coming up, we'll talk about the new prime minister in Iraq, more detail emerging about China's man-made islands in the South China Sea, serious ramifications of inflation within the Eurozone, and the interest payments on America's debt about to exceed the nation's defense budget. We'll be right back. listening to trumpet hour the week in review we spoke in the first half about government transitions in israel and america another nation just had a new prime minister installed this week that is iraq this has truly prophetic implications for this we'll go back to brent noctegal
2: yeah iraq has a new prime minister as of uh thursday going to friday last week we're just reporting on it now um this re- this is very interesting because the election took place some time ago and the uh the the vote leading vote get maktada al-sada is a famous Israeli uh, uh, Iraqi that has kind of stood up in some instances to Iranian hegemony of of Iraq um and he couldn't quite put together a government so what we what we've seen is as of July his he decided to tell all of his supporters to leave the government to resign their position which then put the the majority of the of the of the parliament in the hands of of uh the coalition framework this is a group uh, so a, a group of parties that answer to iran these are parties that are iran aligned iran backed uh and so what have we seen this past thursday well iraq has its new prime minister and it's none other than muhammad al-sudani a very close friend to the former prime minister nouri al-maliki people might be familiar with that name going back to the iraq uh, war period and thereafter and this man is somebody that answers to iran this is iran's choice for the uh, iraq's prime minister um and now he's in power and he has very a lot of jurisdiction over the policy of the country, especially in regards to foreign forces that are located in, inside Iraq, and also to, in order to uh, deepen ties with with its neighbor uh, to the to the east.
0: For anyone who has read the trumpet uh, for a long time, Iranian influence in Iraq is something that Gerald Flurry, our editor in chief, has has been forecasting for a long time, going back to even before the United States removed Saddam Hussein in 2003 in that country. Uh, he has said, watch for it because of what prophecy says about this. And one of the things that he has pointed to specifically, uh, if I remember right, the the exact quote is something like, um, imagine the power that Iran would have if it got control over iraqi oil production uh you look at uh, the state of oil uh, the the uh, the role that this is playing with with prices being what they are today and uh this really could be a game changer for iran
2: yeah iraq is one of the leading exporters of oil and right now it's benefiting greatly from the the rise in the oil price the exact quote You're very close uh, (laughs) from the book, The King of the South. Is can you imagine the power it would have if it gained control of Iraq, which was at one time the third largest, third leading exporter of oil in the world? I predicted as far as 1992 that this could happen, and Mm. so Mr. Flurry is linking the oil power that Iraq has to export and how much that power that would give Iran. It I think it's really interesting that right now you have the situation where Iranian oil is only getting to the market. uh, by via China um, and other means, it's meant to be under sanction by the United States still. So Iran's oil production and and it's what's getting to market is increasing, but it's not huge. But Iraq's oil is 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 going out to the market, and Iraq's government right now has a lot of money. Now who gets to control that money? Well, there's massive corruption inside the Iraqi government. Now you've got the mm. leader that answers to Iran. You've got several of the ministries that garner a lot of the money of the government to direct in the way they see fit going to this iranian backed part of the government and so is this a way that iran can grow in power is right now through access to iraq's uh uh, the oil money that iraq has already to suppress the 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 revolt going on the the greatest revolt i Mm. believe that we've seen in Iran since 2009, still goes on into its seventh week right now, hmm. um, there, there are reports that Iraqis are in Iran suppressing and putting down the protests. Wow. Um, so you, you already have this brotherhood working together, and uh, an Iraq that's flushed with cash that answers to Iran, that's in government behest to Iran, only strengthens Iran and gives Iran an outlet to international markets and uh, kind of this release valve that it can, you know, uh, in, use to to suppress the protests, but also get get money. And so I think you're seeing this prophetic relationship grow quite strong right now at a very important time when Iran, in some ways, could be considered weak.
0: Well, that's very dramatic. I mean, what you're describing there is effectively what Gerald Flory was talking about, he, the uh, the level of influence that he was describing. Uh, Iran already has that to uh, to a substantial degree. It's certainly been working toward that end for a long time, and to have this level of uh, of control or influence, certainly over uh, the Iraqi government through its new prime minister, really is uh, quite extraordinary. We will see how that unfolds. Definitely, look at the booklet, uh, "The King of the South," that describes this in quite some detail and explains why he made that forecast. Now, you said 1992. This is 30 years ago that he was first talking about this, uh, and we're seeing it unfold in our news today. Tomorrow's news today is the uh, the Trumpet's uh, tagline. We thank you very much for that, Mr. Noctegall. New pictures of China's man-made islands in the South China Sea give more detail about just what China is doing there. To learn about this, we'll go back to Jeremiah
4: Jacques. Yes, this is a collection of new high-resolution photos that were captured by Filipino photographer Ezra Akayan. And these show China's military outposts in the South China Sea in just the most stunning detail that we've seen. Azra Akayan actually flew a small aircraft over these islands to to capture the photos. So an incredibly risky move there. But uh, what he captured shows the dramatic transformation that China has made on various reefs in the Spratly archipelago. And it's clear now that China has really turned these into island fortresses. They show, you know, naval gun emplacements, full-sized runways flanked with hangars, uh, close-in Weapon systems, helipads, advanced naval docks where all kinds of warships are anchored. There are also shelters for anti-ship cruise missiles, barracks, radar networks, communication towers, and really everything else you need for for just a full-fledged military base. And there are also an estimated five thousand. People's Liberation Army soldiers across these seven uh, locations. So, you know, it's, it's hard to describe really how formidable these island bases look in the photos, but we'll have an article going up on thetrumpet.com soon that includes some of these photos so that listeners can see for themselves. It's really worthwhile, I think, to look through these and just see the sheer size and the complexity of these bases, because it is easy to see that these could really tip the scales in the event of a conflict in this region.
0: Well, yeah, and to, to look at and not only just how uh, complex they are, but to put it in the context of the fact that this is, this is basically sprung up out of nowhere very
4: quickly, which shows just how determined China is to pursue this course. Great point. Yeah, it still blows me away to remember that just 10 years ago, these islands didn't even exist. You know, all seven of these locations were coral reefs, partially or entirely submerged. In the south china sea but uh starting around 2013 2014 china began using dredgers you know to pump up the sand from the seafloor and onto these reefs they eventually paved over it with cement and then transformed what had been just watery reefs into sizable artificial islands altogether there's about 3200 acres of land at these uh these locations and and of course for the first few years China vowed that this project was not for any military purposes you know how dare you even think that we would do something so uncivilized they were highly offended xi jinping himself denied it on several occasions but it didn't take long to see that those were lies and now these new photographs just add to what was already a very long list of evidence showing that the function of these man-made island bases is purely to improve China's military posturing in the South China Sea.
0: This is a trend that our editor-in-chief has warned significantly
4: about over recent years. Tell us about that. Sure. Yeah. He has said that China's militarization of these islands should, quote, alarm the world because it means China is steering the world toward war in 2016 he wrote a feature article by that title china is steering the world toward war and one part of it says these militarized islands now function as forward bases for beijing to challenge seven decades of american naval dominance in the pacific rim this should alarm the world end quote and then uh mr flurry's article from there explains that this provocative Chinese activity will soon play a part in fulfilling a Bible prophecy about modern day America and Britain actually being besieged by China and some other countries. Deuteronomy 28 52 talks about this future besiegement. And Mr. Flurry says, China's militarization of the South China Sea is one of the many areas where onlookers today can already see this prophecy moving toward its fulfillment. So, you know, this is, it is alarming because it's leading to a time when China and its allies will be able to control one third of the world's maritime commerce through this vital region and the U.S. will be blocked out.
0: All right. Well, thank you very much for that. We'll link to that uh, Gerald Flurry article, China is steering the world toward war and uh, watch for that other article about these Uh, These islands with the imagery included in it, watch for that on thetrumpet.com. Thank you very much, Mr. Jacques. Inflation is hitting several nations uh, these days, and it's already having larger political implications. This is certainly true in Europe. To learn about this, we'll go back to Richard Palmer.
3: Yes, we heard this week, according to Eurostat data published on Monday, that Eurozone inflation has hit 10.7 percent, and... Yeah, that's I think 10.4 was the latest figures from the UK. So it's high. It's higher than expected. It's also broadly in line with the pain that people are are, uh, are feeling due to high inflation all around the world. But for Europe, it puts them in a kind of a special crisis, uh, uh, an especially bad situation, because unlike England or or the UK, unlike America, In Europe, you've got this crisis-making machine, you've got the Eurozone, you've got this situation where you've got very different countries lumped together with one country and, crucially, one interest rate. Your interest rate is what banks use or what the governments use at the end of the day, uh, even though they've delegated that to central banks, but it's what they use to control inflation. You raise interest rates, you don't have as many banks making loans, saving is more attractive. You have less money circulating around the economy, bidding prices up, and inflation should come down. So in Germany, they're screaming out for higher interest rates. Uh, about half of Germans went, rent their homes. Home ownership is especially low within, within Germany and quite another, a lot of other countries in northern Europe. And the culture kind of is that you, keep a lot of your, you have a lot of savings as cash in the bank account. If you've got 10% inflation, that is ET, that's destroying those that's literally decimating those savings. So you can see why there's a huge popular demand within Germany to have higher interest rates. To, you know, it's people's pensions are at stake. You go over to France, you go over to Italy, and you have the opposite problem. You have the interest rates being too high you have businesses going under because they cannot secure the loans that they need just to to keep the everyday business ticking over and you have this then you know people then becoming unemployed and and all of the other economic knock-on effects from that so Already, you know, Germany's crying out for high interest rates, but the, high, the interest rates where they are now are destroying the Italian and French economy. So you had the one of the first things that the new Italian prime minister, Giorgio Meloni, did was attack the European Central Bank for having two higher interest rates. So here you see the extra strain that is put on Europe by this situation and how there's a very rapid mechanism for transforming high inflation into mass dissatisfaction and political crisis.
0: Political crisis. This is something that we have talked about from the very beginning of the Euro, the Eurozone being created uh, as this is actually part of the engineering behind this currency, that it was intended to create exactly this kind of political crisis as a means of forcing greater political integration.
3: That's right. This is not a surprise to anyone, really. It was very obvious that uh, that this would happen. So, you know, was the Eurozone designed by idiots? No, they knew that it would happen. But they knew that the one way of fixing this is to have everything fall apart. But, of course, the other way of fixing it is to come for is to accelerate towards unity, to have a government, to have one government where you have one common culture, where how people own houses or how people save is the same all across the Eurozone. And so this is exactly the type of direction that that these other people want Europe to go. They want this to force all of these different countries to come together and, and have go beyond just sharing a currency to sharing a government and so this is one reason why it's critical to watch this another reason is this is also exactly how herbert w armstrong said that this 10 nations of europe would come together you know he said watch for there to be an economic crisis and then watch for that to help force these different european countries to unite you know he knew that it would be a difficult process he saw the same reality that the European leaders have had, where it's hard work getting these different countries to come together. The Bible acknowledges that same reality even in its in its prophecy. So he said, well, watch for an economic crisis to trigger this. There are biblical prophecies that talk a lot about this country, this coming European Union being an economic union. This economic crisis will cause this to happen. And, and Trump editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry summarized all this in a 2015 article, a bold warning, America's economic collapse.
0: All right. Well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Palmer. We'll link to that. We also have a a brief article about this record inflation set stage for a new euro crisis. We'll link to that as well. We appreciate you bringing that to us, Mr. Palmer. A look now at the trouble within America's economy as interest rates rise. The price of debt grows quickly, which creates serious problems for a highly
1: indebted nation like America. For this, we'll go back to Andrew Miller. The Federal Reserve just raised its interest rates for the sixth time this year and may yet raise them a seventh before the year is over. Uh, Most analysts think the Fed rate may be up to 4.5% by the end of the year, which is definitely bad news for anyone who wants to take out an auto loan or a mortgage anytime soon, uh, and bad news for anyone who has credit card debt. But it's also bad news for the nation's biggest debtor, the United States government the United States government spent $475 billion in interest payments on its national debt last year. And at current interest rates, it's going to be set to spend more than $757 billion next year. Uh, that's particularly interesting is because the United States spends about $800 billion on defense. Uh, and uh, we here at the Trumpet have quoted financial historians like Niall Ferguson many times who's noticed that nations and empires like the Soviet Union and the Roman Empire and others oftentimes disintegrate when the cost of servicing their debt exceeds the cost of defending their borders. And so with, uh, with Fed rates growing up, America could be to the point where it's actually spending more in interest on its national debt than it spends on its military Within the next couple years, uh, the Congressional Budget Office predicts that will happen in 2026, but, uh, but these Fed rates could actually push that up quite a bit sooner, uh, which is bad news because uh, in a related story, the, the Heritage Foundation has already ranked the U.S. military uh, as weak, saying that the Army only has 62% of the power it should have, the Navy only has 75% of the power it should have. Mm-hmm. The Air Force only has 86% of the power it should have. And the Marine Corps is the only branch of the U.S. military that actually has the power it needs. And so according to this Heritage Report, if America wants to continue being the world policeman, it probably needs to increase defense spending like 20% and actually be spending a trillion dollars a year on its military. But these Fed rates are saying that, like, actually, we're going to be spending so much on interest in the next couple of years that we're going to have to decrease the power of the military. And so you you put these uh, you put these two stories together and it becomes very obvious that America just cannot afford to be the world's policeman anymore. Within the next two three years, we're going to be to a point where policymakers are just going to have to say if it happens in the eastern hemisphere it's not our problem if it happens in the southern hemisphere it's not our problem it's Mm -hmm. like basically if it doesn't happen on the north american continent we don't have the money or or the power to deal with this uh and Mm -hmm. many many republicans actually would probably be happy if america did that did that sooner rather than later, but we, we also know from other biblical prophecies that eventually you've got foreign nations in these areas that we can't afford to police anymore teaming up again, besieging the North American continent. Mm-hmm. And so you, you can definitely see the outlines of this Mart of Nations prophecy where you've got Africa and uh, South America and Europe and Asia all teaming up together to besiege <laughs> to besiege North America. And, uh, and the United States can't do anything about it because the heritage foundation says it's probably already to a point where we couldn't fight two major conflicts at once um and these uh the interest payments on our national debt may push us to a point in the next two or three years where we can't even fight one major conflict at once if it wasn't on our home territory the
0: uh this reality, we've been talking about this for quite some time, that the indebtedness of the United States is actually a serious threat to national security, that it's actually the greatest threat to America's national security. There are uh, proverbs, there are biblical passages that talk about the dangers of being overly indebted, and it does seem that the day of reckoning for that out-of-control spending and record debt is approaching quickly uh we do have articles about both of these stories that uh, mr miller was talking about u.s interest payments set to exceed defense budget and u.s military now quote weak Uh, we'll link to those on the show notes you can find them at the trumpet.com thank you mr miller i'm joel hilliker that's it for today's trumpet hour email us your thoughts on the program to letters at the trumpet.com Thanks to our panel, Jeremiah Jacques, Andrew Miller, Richard Palmer, and Brent Noctegall. Thanks to Parker Campbell for engineering and production. I'll leave you with the words of Henry Ford. If you think you can, or if you think you can't, you're probably right. Thanks for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Until next time, keep watching your world. listening to trumpet hour on trumpet radio 101.3 kpcg and online at kpcg.fm understand your world